just want to welcome you back to the discussion um, and let you know next week the discussion um, sheets are on your tables and we will hear Jennifer McManus speak about Fort McMurray's wildfires. Has the recovery response been adequate? So that's sure to be a very interesting discussion. Um, all of our sessions are listed on www.sacpaw.ca and you can check out um, our archives for previous discussions, but also see what's up and coming. Um, also on Facebook and Twitter, so find us there. There is a suggestion box outside on the table. If you have some topics of interest that you think we should address here, we would love to hear from you. Now for today, as you ask your questions, please state your name and keep your comments brief and get to the question, but also let's please make sure we avoid personal attacks. <sighs> That's, yeah, of Dr. James Tag. I think uh, I'm not in charge of the rest. Um, anyways, <laughs> so yes, um, feel free to head up to the mic. And I just wanted to read a quick paragraph about Dr. James Tag because it was so brief earlier that I just wanted to say, um, he joined the University of Lethbridge in 1969. He received his PhD in history from Wayne State University in Michigan in 73. And for almost 35 years, he has taught the sweep of American history, initiated the first Southern Alberta history course, and established, helped establish a program in liberal, liberal education at the University of Lethbridge. So, you know, I know you knew he was qualified to speak earlier, but I just wanted to confirm that for you. Once again, Dr. James Tag. thank you. <clears throat> Thanks, Bobby. I don't know how qualified anybody is to speak on politics, but uh, <laughs> in the age we live in. Thank you very much for your rapid-fire presentation. Uh, Terry Shellington is my name. And um, I wonder if you would address the, the election issue of Hillary's emails. Uh, I, I've done some considerable reading on it er, in various uh, media. And I, I understand that uh, government uh, emails have confidentiality and privacy that the public server doesn't, but I struggle to understand where the criminality issue, uh, how, how that, it may be ill-advised, but uh, can you comment on the, the, the criminality aspect of it that, that Republicans, other than Donald Trump, have uh, talked about a lot? <laughs> well, I'll try. I think you know as much as I do about this. The... Uh, of course, the FBI, under its leader Bob Comey, already has said with the first 40,000-odd emails that, that there's no criminality they can find in it. Um, the fact that she played fast and loose with sending uh, classified information using her personal email server uh, doesn't necessarily mean anything has happened. We do have to remember that about this email business. Nothing, nothing has come of this. We don't know of any, anything that's been horribly damaging uh, through it. And also we have to realize that a server is a server is a server. The State Department has servers, and she has a server. And uh, what's the difference? They're both, uh, it's possible to hack both of them, and the State Department has been hacked in the past. So. It's, uh, it's kind of a vague and unusual thing. And there's nothing been brought about up in the contents of them that hasn't been finally 
dismissed as as uh, as okay. But it's her, uh, you know, her tendency to not be f as forthright as she might be at, at the outset that has been the problem. I think. I don't know if that's an answer or not. I don't think. I don't think it is, and I don't know if we do know the answer to all of that. Knut. Hi, my name is Knut Peterson. Thanks for coming today, James. That was. Uh, I'm sure you had a little bit of trouble getting ready for this. Things changed uh, constantly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, my question relates to uh, the electoral colleges uh, situation in the United States, the difference uh, in each state. Uh, many states have different rules around the voting pattern. So could you uh, explain a little bit about that? Well, every state has uh, as many electoral votes as they have members of the House of Representatives and senators. For the state of Montana, for example, they have one representative, but still two senators. So they have three electoral votes, which is as small as they can get <laughs> in terms of influence. Um, electoral vote, that means then that states that have large electoral votes, Florida, Texas, Ohio, New York, Pennsylvania, these are all critical states because they have a lot of electoral votes up for grabs. Uh, and as you probably know, the Democrats have been, have prevailed in recent decades uh, on the East Coast, the Northeast Coast, and they have on the far west, California, uh, Washington, Oregon. And the uh, Republicans have tended to prevail in the so-called heartland states and in the deep south uh, that is ever since Richard Nixon and w when, when Richard Nixon brought the Republican Party to the south replacing the Democrats. I'm going on too much, I'll stop there. Hi Jim, I'm Henning Mundell. I wonder if you could uh, comment a bit about the high-profile, maybe behind the scenes, some in front of the scenes, Republicans that are not able to support Donald Trump to, I'm going to name, the Koch brothers, where do they go in an election like this? Uh, I, don't, I don't know where they go, but I think the Koch brothers are a lot more interested in Congress right now and uh, I think they have a tremendous and profound influence, especially in the House of Representatives, but also uh, to some degree in the Senate. There is a core of Republicans uh, who will be elected to the House of Representatives, 50 to 70 of them, who represent what is called the alt-right, the extreme right, and they will not vote for anything uh, if a Democratic administration comes in, nor will they probably proffer any legislation on their own. Uh, so we have these very strange uh, groups that remain with us. It, it, we may not see very much change at all. Trevor? Uh, Trevor Page, uh, much of what you had to say certainly resonates with me. I wonder if you could comment a little on what you feel the effect of Trumpism is going to have on the Republican Party beyond the current election. Well, a lot of people talk about uh, a Trump defeat, a bad Trump defeat is a 
as crippling the Republican Party as well. I'm not certain that's the case. Um, we have so many selective electoral districts in the United States, for example, in Congress, that will be Republican no matter what happens. They could run a dog in most of these districts and they would get elected. Was, same can be said for some Democratic districts too. So I'm not, I'm not certain I see a whole lot of change to the Republican Party in this, except that their, their racism has been really exposed and they are going to have to hustle like crazy in regard to, to doing something about that. They are going to have to liberalize themselves in regard to race uh, and also in regard to uh, ethnicity with Hispanics, for example. Uh, and that's, that's a big haul for them. But that's the only thing I, I see, I guess, right now. I, I don't know, I should ask you what you what your view on that. I mean, all of you know <laughs> as much as I do about predictive things, I think, so. Um, go ahead. Thank you, thank you for your address. Um, as an ex-teacher, and many of us in this room, I think, are, um, my concern with so much of this is bullying. As teachers, it was, it's a main concern in the schools today, and ch children are reprimanded and they are disciplined for it. How come these candidates can get away with the caliber of bullying that they, that they are? Can you comment on that? Well, I, th I think Donald Trump bullies. Uh, I don't know. I'm thinking of others. I guess none, nobody else comes to mind right now. But certainly he does bully, and that's par part of his narcissistic personality, too. Narcissists will talk. They don't, ca they don't care if listeners are listening, especially. They just push, 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 push. But the vulgarity, the level of vulgarity in this election is just uh, the amazing thing. One of the uh, one of the pollsters was on television the other night, and she said uh, she had to watch the debate, of course, for her work. And she said, "I couldn't let my fourth grade daughter watch it with me because it's it's just it's too vulgar for for that." Um, it's partly a call. Uh, it's partly a comment on our our cultures today too. We are much more brutish. Uh, in in North America than we used to be, we we say things that are bullying uh, routinely. Uh, you see more and more of that kind of visceral behavior across the board, so it's um, worrying. Hi Jim, thanks so much for the presentation. I wasn't going to miss this one. My name is Frances Schultz. One of the things that I've been noticing is when you're watching ads on American stations, I've noticed it particularly Oregon and Washington states where the Democratic candidates for governor or for Senate identify on their ad that they're Democratic, but on the GOP tickets, they don't put their, their political party. Is, the, is that going to... Well, it, it might help them get elected, but is it going to cause ripple effects in the party? I don't know if it. I don't know if it will. I. I think that's a fairly minor thing for them. I mean, they'll come back to the fold. It's just not. It's just not. Uh, 
a comfortable thing for them to do when they're running, I, I think they'll just uh, they'll come right back to it. It's it's a convenience in this election, and I don't think they have to bow down to the party uh, hierarchy. Uh, and that is a case. The party hierarchy is kind of fragmented as well, and uh, it, it's unclear who really is in charge. Um, and it could be the case, too, when the election takes place that uh, in Congress you'll find the Republicans fragmented. I hope so, but um, uh, I'm not going to predict it. I'm Mary Shillington. Thanks, Jim. Uh, I was looking forward to your talk today. Um, two comments, uh, one a question, one a comment. Uh, as a retired uh, clinical social worker, I have said for quite a while that uh, Trump had a mental illness. And so I'm not surprised to hear you agreeing with that. Uh, I'm interested, though, and we discussed it a bit at our table, um, what could uh, the Republicans do have done, and at what point could they have rejected him? Uh, because people were not, and so what, what was the choices they had, and what's in your opinion? Yeah, well, that's a very difficult one, isn't it? They thought I, for the longest time that he would disappear as a candidate, and he probably did too uh, in his heart of hearts. Uh, but um, when he was then nominated and in the very earliest kinds of abuse that he was flinging at, it, at their, his own party members, I think they would have been really wise to gang up on him then and say, we have this uh, procedure, which is very democratic, uh, using primaries to select a presidential candidate, and he's won this le uh, legitimately, but we won't endorse him. And I think they would have been far better off. They could have really rallied to uh, try to save the Senate. As of this morning, the prediction on the Senate is that 66% chance that the Democrats will take the Senate over uh, by one or two votes, probably. Uh, and uh, they could have saved themselves on all of that and, and created a Republican stance and just isolated him. I think that would have been the smartest thing for them to do. Um, but we'll see. I don't know what the fallout will be. They may just do fine from it. Hello, Dr. Tag. Thank you for your presentation. Hi, my name is Heather Oxman. I have two questions. Um, I'm wondering uh, if you think the Democrats will use the uh, anti-Barry Goldwater strategy in the next several days, um, which would was Johnson's, um, if you elect this man, the bombs will go off. Yeah. Yep. And uh, my second question is, what do you think will happen on November 9th? Do you think that... Um, people's lives will be in danger in America because of the stance that created the next president. Do you think yeah. that revolution will break out? Well, uh, those are two very good questions, and June and I have debated them at home a lot of the time. Um, let me see, the first one was... Oh, Barry Goldwater, yes. The, uh, that uh, finger on the nuclear button... Uh, argument in the 64 election uh, worked very effectively for the Democrats and but they used it from the beginning and I don't know if the, it, 
if that might just appear a little too desperate and late to really hit it hard now in the last few days. But they have been, they have been using it to some degree. I was just looking at the Atlantic this morning, and it is a magazine that's been around since the mid-19th century. It's endorsed three candidates, Abraham Lincoln in 1860, Lyndon Johnson in 64 because Goldwater was so terrifying, and now Hillary Clinton because Donald Trump is so terrifying. And they're using the nuclear ar argument. Now, as to what is going to happen, I, I think June's more pessimistic than me. I'm such an optimistic person. Uh, that, that there will be a, a considerable violence from a very angry electorate that has voted for Trump and is enthusiastic for him. The problem I see with this is I see no organization to it. it. It could happen. It could be sporadic. But I don't see uh, a group coming together with a common kind of fascist goal. Uh, and I don't see Donald Trump as bothering with it because I just don't think he has the capacity to organize. Uh, and of course, the talk is that he's going to start his own network. Uh, well, I don't, with whose money, since he never uses his own, um, and, uh, and how, what are they going to do with this? I, I just don't see any big organized thing coming of it, but it could over the long haul. This could really fester and it could go on and you could get grassroots movements coming and you have local groups in different states. and. We've had the Minutemen movement in the United States before. It could grow bigger than that. I mean, uh, revolution is not out of the question, certainly, given the disaffection of almost everyone to something. So it's going to be an interesting thing to watch, uh, that's for sure. But personally, on uh, the 9th, I'm going to do something totally uh, devoid of politics. Bev. Bev Mendelatherstone, thank you, Jim. That was absolutely wonderful talk. Thank you so much. Um, my questions relate exactly to um, to Heather's questions. Um, it, it seems to me like <clears throat> whatever happens, we're we're going to have civil war on starting on the ninth. Um, probably starting off sporadically and then going to civil war. Um, you can comment on that, but I, I want to re relate it to the totalitarian capitalism. It seems to me that this, um, you know, you talked about the brutishness. You've never seen this brutishness. I, as a kid growing up in California, um, I certainly saw that brutishness in private, not so much in public, but people would say it privately, and I've seen it throughout my life when I go back to the States, this brutishness. And it's, it's, I think it's always there, and maybe it's just been um, kept down by sort of a politeness in society. So I'm wondering if that brutishness is related to the totalitarian capitalism. In other words, people don't know who to blame. They know something's wrong, they can't figure it out, and so they're blaming everyone. And that's why I think we're gonna have civil war do you, as a historian, have a way of analyzing what I've just spoken about in, in terms of a possibility of civil war? Well, that's a big talk. I hope everybody's ready for another couple hours. <laughs> um, 
the certainly we have had uh, this kind of uh, outburst before with Timothy McVeigh and the Oklahoma City bombings, and with the Unabomber, we've had people who have uh, within close proximity or close time period to each other uh, done this. As I still don't see the kind of organized rallying, organizing kind of thing that uh, massive violence that it would require. I may be wrong. But on the issue of British behavior, bullying, and all of those things that have come up, um, those are a consequence of, of course, not having a civil society anymore. But a civil society is also a civic society. And people have to think that they are part of a body politic, that society is real. Uh, no matter what they think about government, uh, government being the problem, society is absolutely real. Human beings are social animals, and we had better start operating in a more civil and civic way. One of my big complaints has been when, when I was in school, you had civics in grade four, and you had a civics class in grade seven, and you had civics in your third year of high school. Uh, you knew who political candidates were, you knew what the issues were, all of that kind of thing. None of that is taught anymore. And as a matter of fact, also, while I'm at it, history isn't taught anymore. And if you don't have a sense of, uh, of being part of a narrative, that you're, that you're part of some kind of development, it leads to all sorts of helter-skelter kind of, of behavior. So these things are all interlocked, I believe. And, uh, you know, um, we have, we have just turned to, to entertainment. Neil Postman wrote a book in the 1990s called Entertaining Ourselves to Death. And it's still a very pertinent book, and every, everybody should look at it. And we have all sorts of other things that are opiates. Uh, organized sports have become the opiate of, I'm not going to use the word masses because we're all masses. Uh, and uh, um, I'll bet you that, uh, well, in my case, I could probably name hundreds of sports stars, but I couldn't name every congressman in the United States or every member of parliament and tell you anything about them. So people have the capacity to know a lot, but they're drugging themselves on something else. And uh, at least some part of every adult human being has to be directed toward, I'm part of this society and I've got to understand it to some degree. And I don't think they understand it at all now, I mean, most people. All of you are the exception. <laughs> uh, Carol Sakia. <clears throat> Dare I say, this is my weekly drug. I really like this group. Um, <laughs> thanks for uh, your talk today, Jim. Um, you know, eight years ago, I thought that it was uh, implausible for a black man to win over a white woman. But then I had to give my head a shake and say, she is a woman, uh -huh. regardless of color. Uh -huh. So now, here we are. Uh, you're predicting Trump. I hope you're not just uh, optimistic and brave, but I hope you're correct. Because Clinton, I am I'm predicting Clinton. Don't, you said Trump. I think. Oh, sorry, Trump's yeah. correct. Don't, and don't do that to me. <laughs> <laughs> predicting Trump's loss were my words. Oh, anyway, okay. um, is there any way to know or estimate 
how much of Trump's supporters are purely anti an anti anti-female vote because I you know when I see the stuff on TV and I, I see women interviewed and they definitely will not vote for Hillary haven't got a good reason why um, but they're just not and it's not that they could say good for her or bad for him or the other way they just they're just in denial about whatever and I I keep thinking is that a anti-female vote it is. And is that simply <laughs> what it is? I think misogyny runs through this campaign as thick as racism does, probably more so. But most people tell themselves, I'm not really anti-woman. Uh, it's just that I want a woman candidate who is polite, attractive, demure, intelligent, and able, but I, I don't want her to be feisty. Uh, and then in a minute later, they'll say, well, you can't have anybody who run for office who isn't feisty and strong. So el elimination takes place. It's kind of a second level misogyny, uh, just like a lot of racism t is too. It just, it lurks underneath there. And I think it's profound in this election. I think it runs through most of the electorate. So she is fighting uphill on that. She is a pretty feisty person, and uh, people want to find things wrong with her on that, on that basis. Well, you know, the Clintons, they hang around with a lot of people who have money, and the Clintons say one thing to one person and another to another. And it was all these little subtle things. Um, but, um, I mean, if she had the record of her husband, she wouldn't be elected in a minute. But uh, the, she has to have this record that is so much better, and that's why she plays all of her cards close to her chest and tries to avoid contentious issues. She has to. She's forced into it. My name is Van Christou. Uh, thank you so much, Jim, for being with us today and for delivering the message you, you delivered so well. Um, I was glad to hear you uh, bring up the matter of science as being one of our problems today. Uh, here I am, a person who uh, went through eight years of university studying the sciences, and uh, most people are not aware of the fact that the University of Lethbridge uh, would not be here today if Ernest Manning hadn't listened to an argument that I made that our two universities in the, in the province the University of Alberta and the University of Calgary um, were, are mainly scientific and we need a balance with a, a university that will teach the humanities. Uh, and that's how the University of Lethbridge was born. Um, my question to you is, do you think that there's any chance that we can bolster the humanities more in order to make sense of the disaster that's happening with the overindulgence in, in science and overdependence on science and, and technology. What's happened, uh, well, it's, uh, again, thank you, Van, that's a very big subject. And you can listen to an interview of Van Christou that I did for the University of Lethbridge. You can go to the university and listen to it, and he talks about many of these things further there. Um, what has happened increasingly in um, different fields of study is they be have become made a science. 
historians want to be considered scientific in their work, uh, for example. And, and philosophers, all philosophy today is analytical philosophy. It's all 20th century, 21st century analytical philosophy. Nobody teaches metaphysics and, and teaches uh, history of philosophy that much anymore. So science has really taken these things over. But when I made this comment about science, by the way, I am not anti-science. But um, there are other ways of knowing things as well. History is one of them. Uh, and we can know a great deal from it. But a kind of scientific method standard has been set up that's both that, that's exclusionary and um, and it's kind of kept by I, I don't think people mean it to be this way but it's kind of an elite a scientific elite that holds this body of knowledge and we're telling you no I believe climate change is has been uh, is partly the consequence of uh, human action uh, but scientists kind of browbeat people away uh, in a way with this too and uh, it, it people just recoil at it because it's an exclusive us and them thing again uh, the um, I think the humanities will be actually the humanities are very strong in terms of enrollment despite the change in the culture we're in uh, but I think they will they will do fine as long as they do what they have been doing um, and uh, well, I'll leave it at there. It's a, it is a big subject. Okay. Oh. <laughs> um, and Heather will have our last question for us today. <laughs> Thanks, Bobby. Um, Heather Oxman. Um, it's kind of a complicated idea, but here goes. Um, the Tea Party, which rose up uh, sort of post-Obama's election, is organized. And you said that you don't see an organization in the militancy that could arise from uh, the November 9th consequence. The Tea Party is organized. Mil militia are organized. Mm -hmm. My concern is that uh, the Tea Party has been carrying guns to Trump's organized uh, events mm -hmm. um, and of the other of his supporters have been carrying weapons to his events mm -hmm. um, if that's not organized what is and how can we as a country north of that group of people we call our friendly neighbors be prepared for what could be a real civil war. I mean, they're talking about building a wall south of them. Should we be thinking about building a wall <laughs> north of them? And I say that only slightly. Okay, is that <laughs> yes, your question, I Heather? I, I, I've said it before <laughs> as well, and make them pay for it. <laughs> but... Uh, uh, Heather, I, I'm trying to be more optimistic than you, but yes, of course, the Tea Party is kind of quasi-organized. Uh, the militiamen are much more organized. Uh, but it, in terms of a plan or a strategy on their part to do things, uh, 
Uh, I think they're a long way from that. They like to go out and express their rage um, at a Trump rally and beat up a reporter or something like this, which is also very fascist. But um, I don't know. I'm trying to be optimistic here, Heather. I'm Yeah, 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 I, I know, and uh, I'm not sure he has, what influence he's going to have either afterwards. Thank you so much, Dr. Tay. Can we have a round of applause?